So it's been 10 years. Wow. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, you can be more enthusiastic. Come on, it's, it's actually worth celebrating something. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We've got far too polite. I, I was just, uh, we'll, we'll do the announcements and offerings and stuff at the end. But um, obviously this week, we've, Helen and I have been talking, Mike and I have been talking, and it's, it has been an amazing journey this last 10 years. And um, there have been many ups and downs, many wonderful things that have happened. But I just think, you know, it, it is still amazing. It is a miracle that... We started with a couple of guys in our home, and now, 10 years later, here we are. It is amazing. It is amazing. So, someone said to me, how does it feel? Does it feel long or slow? I said, well, some, some ways it feels long, in other ways it feels slow. It's kind of like a funny mixture. I think when I look at my kids, then I think, yeah, it has been 10 years. But when I look in the mirror, I don't feel it's been 10 years. I feel, I feel quite the same as I did when, I was, when we started. Uh, but I suppose we've all changed a lot, eh? We've changed a lot, and God has changed us, and it's been a great delight. So I want to just say thank you to all of you for, for hanging in there for 10 years, right? <laughs> for those of you that have been around from the very beginning, and some of you have joined recently, and uh, you're the, part of, the history of this church is yours, and the future of this church is yours. So thank you one and all for, for being, being Forest Town Church. It's, uh, it's been a total delight. It really has. And um, I want to just talk this morning as we look forward, I hope. We want to celebrate the past. But most of all, we want to look forward to the next 10 years. So I'm going to try and talk for about half an hour. I did ask for all the kids to be in because I feel like it is a, it's a family time. We need to celebrate as a family. And um, it seems that half the family is exhausted this morning because they partied too hard last night. But that's also a good thing. But uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts. So if you want to go to the book of Acts, we're going to look at the first five chapters. I'm not going to do the whole five chapters. I'm just going to look at some highlights and I'd like to call this the church that God has in mind. The church that God has in mind. And um, we look back with gratitude. We look back with thanksgiving. But let's look forward in, into what God has for us for the next 10 years. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I was just uh, enjoying the polit- political situation and this whole kind of coalition. I was interested in their language when they were talking at the press conference. A lot of their language was like the unknown path. Did you, did you pick that up? They're like, well, something's happened. We've been brought together, but we don't quite know how it's going to work, but it's going to work, and, and we're working it out as we go, and we've got some core things that we agree around. And I, f- I found that very encouraging, that uh, God is changing the nation. He's changing the way that a whole lot of stuff happens. And I think this economic situation is also forcing us to look at something of what we really, really value and what God wants us to value into the future. But the kind of church that God has in mind. I just would like to look at one verse out of chapter 1, first of all, please. Verse 1, chapter 1. In my first book, for Theophilus, this is written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, obviously. He said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, I want to say this very simply, and this might sound obvious, but surely... The church that God has in mind is all about Jesus. And uh, you might say, well, why should I say that? Because I think there are many churches that are built around many things that are not Jesus. There can be churches that are built around political causes. There can be churches that are built around social reform. There can be churches that are built around all sorts of things, not Jesus. But here, here not Jesus at the center. Here, Luke writes and he says, 
I want to just remind you of what I did in the first book. I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught. And so I want to say to you that everything in terms of the future must be centered around Jesus. Every book of the Bible is centered around Jesus. John 14, 6, there's only one way to the Father, through Jesus. The Holy Spirit is given to us by Jesus, given to the church by Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. There's no man that leads the church. Forestown Church is not led by me. It is led by Jesus. It's led by Him, primarily. We are growing up into the head who is Christ, and there's some earthly people that are helping to coordinate things, but ultimately the church is led by Jesus. Not by the Pope, if you're Catholic, from a Catholic background, please forgive me if I offend you. It's the Pope is not the head of the church, all right? Jesus is the head of the church. Always has been, always will be. And the book of Acts is about what Jesus did and what Jesus is still doing through the Holy Spirit in the church today. And Jesus still leads by doing and teaching. And uh, if you read the Gospels, they're amazing because you can read all the stories of what Jesus did. He, he healed people. He fed people. He walked on water. He had total, total command over the elements. He did much. And yet, if you also read, he taught much. He taught his disciples how to live. He taught his disciples about the kingdom. And many of his, uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, for example, is the record of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he just was teaching his disciples and saying, let me tell you about how I want you to live, and let me tell you about my kingdom, and this is what my kingdom is like. And he still leads in the same way. He still does stuff. He still saves us. He still forgives our sins. He still heals our diseases. He still is a miracle-working God, and then he comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he just tells us, what he's doing. Are you with me? So he still does, and he still teaches. He still gives us promises. And so this book that we're going to look at this morning, the first couple of chapters, is all about the Holy Spirit and what he's doing through the church on the earth today. So I want to say it's not a record of, we don't celebrate, in, when we look at the book of Acts, we're not celebrating the history of the church. We're celebrating what the church should be. What it is now, it should be. And I want to look at that when I'm talking this thing of what is the church that God has in mind. The day of Pentecost, we looked at a couple of weeks ago where there's this amazing thing that God does by the power of His Spirit. He comes down and baptizes the people in the upper room. And there's this absolute outpouring of power upon the people that radically changes everything that had been happening up to that point. The book of Acts is a, is a practical description of what the church should be. So up until that point, they'd been doing stuff that churches normally do. If you read, for example, in Acts 1.20, when they're um, talking about Judas who had betrayed Jesus, how they should replace him, they refer to the Scripture. And Peter has a look at Psalms, and he, he, he kind of says, no, it's right, so he makes reference to Scripture. So they were reading the Word. They were appointing people. You read that Matthias comes and they, they, they choose him to, to um, replace Judas. So they, they were doing that as well. They were getting people in place so, the, so that the, uh, the church could function normally. They were praying together, enjoying fellowship. You read that in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. So they were doing things that churches normally do. I mean, we've been do, doing some stuff for 10 years now. What Things that churches do. Reading the word, preaching, praying. And then there's this amazing event of the Holy Spirit coming and being poured out. And that radically, radically changes everything in an extraordinary way. 
So Acts chapter 1 verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this is this amazing outpouring. And despite what happens after that, we read in chapter 4, for example, there's all this persecution that breaks out. Despite that, the church goes forward. The church endures the persecution and there's great spiritual victories that come. And I love this. This is one of my particular verses uh, that I, is, is, for me is just so amazing in the first couple of chapters. You go down to, I think it's verse 12, and it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? They had been with Jesus. That's what made them different. They had been with Jesus. And so we, we read on further in the for example, if you just glance at the headings in your Bible in um, Acts chapter 6. You can read the story there where the, the church is growing rapidly, it's growing powerfully. There's a story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and how he's martyred and the way that he just in all things brings glory to God. Uh, you can read of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, you get on to Saul, the man who was... Uh, breathing murderous threats over the church and his miraculous, miraculous conversion. And this man that hated the church comes face to face with Jesus and the scales have come off his eyes and he sees the living Christ and he sees the church that he's been persecuting is in fact Jesus' bride and it radically transforms his life. All after the Holy Spirit is poured out. So I want to look at a couple of things that I think are absolutely extraordinary um, <coughs> extraordinary about the, the, the church in the first couple of chapters and what the church, the kind of church that God has in mind. All right? The first thing I want to say is this. After the Holy Spirit is poured out, these extraordinary, extraordinary things begin to happen. Extraordinary prayer begins to happen. Extraordinary generosity begins to happin extraordinary unity begins, begins to happen. And re, in reality, this story of, of uh, the Holy Spirit being poured out and what happens after it, in reality, that's the first revived congregation that we read of in the Bible. The first revived congregation. That's how church should be, all right? Admittedly, it's also the, the only congregation in the Bible because uh, uh, at that point, the church hadn't yet grown. But they received teaching of the apostles. Uh, 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 Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they received the apostles' teaching that enabled them to enjoy fellowship, that enabled them to enjoy prayer. They focused on the cross of Christ. They focused on unity. There's this kind of almost uh, communal living where they're living in each other's homes. They're sharing all they had, this extraordinary stuff that begins to happen. But let's go, please, to Acts chapter 4, because for me, this is one of the most extraordinary uh, things that happens in this early, with this early group of believers. Remember Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple one day and they come across this man who's been crippled from birth. He's in, in his 40s and he asks for silver and gold. And what does Peter say? He says, silver and gold we do not have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this extraordinary miracle happens and this crippled man who's now healed, he follows them around the temple and it totally offends the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say, well, in whose name are you preaching this healing? <laughs> like, this man's been crippled for all his life. And he gets healed, and they worried about how it happened. 
And then Jesus, uh, uh, Peter says, no, it's in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He preaches the resurrected Christ. And uh, he says, in this name, it's the, it's, this man's healing came. So the Pharisees then call them across and interrogate them. And l- this is what it says after that in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against, together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the glorious name of your servant, Jesus. There's this amazing prayer meeting. I want to say this to you, and I don't say this as we, as we go forward. This is not with an ounce of condemnation in my heart for anyone. I want to say to you, if our prayer life is not revived extraordinarily in the life of this church, we will never see revival come. I, I just want to be flat out open with you. If we cannot find time in our individual life or as a corporate, in our corporate life to pray, man, revival ain't going to come. Because one of the signs of revival is that people's hearts are revived, that they want to pray. They want to make the sacrifice. They want to say, well, I will not watch the football on Sunday afternoon because I'd rather be with God's people praying. And there's this amazing thing that happens in, in the... Can we have a look at that, uh, the, uh, that, that portion again? In verse 24, it says that the prayer was loud. <laughs> it says it was united. It was with one voice. They lifted up their voice together. It was united. There's great unity that prayer brings about. It was Bible-based, secondly. What did they do? They're quoting Psalm 2. And they're just praying back to God, Psalm 2. And the third thing, ah, this, this really amazed me. It's, the day of Pentecost has only been, has only been uh, three months old, basically. These people have got saved. They've only been baptized by the Spirit for about 12 weeks. And look at the maturity and the passion and the unity with which they pray. I felt this as I was speaking with, with some of the guys this week. You know, we can, we can approach the next 10 years with this in mind, that, that God, you can, we'll just slowly go into the future and we'll trust you and you can do stuff. And it's kind of like a sense that we're running a marathon. And that's true, we are running a marathon. But I felt God say this to me. Well, have, you, have, you, have you stopped having faith for the suddenlies? Because here yeah, it's a suddenly. It's not like they're not waiting. For, it's three months. It's three months and the Spirit is poured out and they, 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 there's maturity in their hearts. There's passion in their hearts. There's a love for Jesus. They're praying together. It's just happened quickly. I want to say, let's have some faith for the suddenlies for this community. Amen. The suddenly, it doesn't have to take another 10 years. We can, we can just walk forward and trust God for something to happen someday. Or we can have faith and say, Lord, we, we believe you can do it now. I believe you can heal my family now. You can, you can save those in my family now that don't know you. You can do anything by the power of your spirit. You, you, you can just, right now you could come on us with tons of fire. Why not? 
Oh. So there's this amazing maturity in these young believers. And when you read that press, what's so wonderful is that they're not praying for their circumstances to change. How many of you wish that the credit crunch hadn't come? I do, but, but you know what? Look at, they're not praying for the situation to change. They're just saying, God, here we are. You are sovereign over all. You allowed these things to happen. All the stuff that's been happening in Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified. We understand it's all part of your sovereign plan. And all we want from you, Lord, is enable us to preach boldly. And please, at the same time, stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders. That's the only two things they ask. They say, God, give us great boldness. And please, God, move in power. Doesn't that encourage you? We don't have to get all wired about the economic situation or the political situation. How's the coalition going to... No, Lord, just all we want. Enable us to preach boldly. Preach in the name of Jesus. And please, stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders. Yes. So exciting. And what is the result of their prayer? I want to be in a prayer meeting like this. The result of their prayer... At the end of the chapter you read, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled, again, with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with great boldness. Man! The early church had an extraordinary attitude to prayer. I want to encourage you with all of my heart. In your families, and this is a challenge to me, with your kids, with your husband, with your wife, Let's have an extraordinary expectation for prayer this year. That God can do much by the power of His Holy Spirit as we pray. And let's get together and pray regularly with passion. All in one voice, loudly, in unity. That God can come and pour Himself out again. It's the church that God has in mind. Alright? Secondly, the other thing that I think is absolutely extraordinary is their attitude towards their possessions and their money. And I'm not going to focus on the money part, all right? So just relax. But, but their attitude is amazing towards their possessions. And, and I, it spoke to me as I was preparing this week, especially in the light of this economic crunch. What is our attitude going to be towards what we have and the money that we have? It's, it's, it's an extraordinary change. They were living in difficult times. They were living in extremely difficult times. Ordinary people were poor. Those had been brought to faith uh, and, and salvation, there was great unity, as we've read in, in, the, in the church. And I, I love this verse in the NIV. It says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything. I mean, the attitude towards what they had was like, it's communal. Man, isn't that challenging? We live in a world where everything is individual. Your small screen TV or big screen TV and your car and your this and your iPod and your PSP and your, 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 your. And we've all got a myriad of these things that are all ours. And we, I'm trying to teach my boys to share PSP. You know how hard that is. You would think you can easily just give, it's very difficult. Like, no, you need one each. Why do you need one each? Surely, <laughs> surely you can share one. Hey, Jess. And the other thing in the, in the, the wonder of the church is, is that those guys that have much, they, they prepare just to give it away. And this is what struck me so powerfully, their heart motive. Can you, if you go and read that, that portion, no one preached to them to share. No one preached to them. 
God didn't bring revelation supernaturally. If you read Acts 13, for example, it says they were all together and they were all praying and God said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I, there was revelation that came for a specific thing. There's no, that's not that kind of revelation. It's not God speaking and saying, share your possessions with those that don't have. It's a good thing. It's just a heart. They so loved each other. Man, that is inside out the thing. They so loved each other, they could not help themselves but just share what they had. God gave them great freedom to do what they wanted to do with their possessions, and out of what they, they just wanted to do, it, they just shared all they had. Doesn't that challenge you? Challenges me. It's out there, great love and generosity for what God was doing because it was such an extraordinary time. There was, the church was one heart, one soul, one mind. That's how they lived. There's just the sense the church is loving on each other and helping each other as the need arose. And then we read of this guy called Joseph Barnabas. He's an extraordinary chap. Absolutely extraordinary man. And he is led to do something absolutely exceptional. He shows great love. He shows great uh, generosity. He, sells his, he takes a piece of land he has and he sells the thing and it says he lays the money at the feet of the apostles and uh, I think what that means is that he asked the apostles, well, help me to spend this money wisely. What should we do with it? And that was an exceptional thing. No, it doesn't become a law for the whole church, all right? Not like suddenly now everyone must go and sell their homes. No, it's like an exceptional thing that happened because of exceptional faith with this exceptional man. And he decides to do this, and it blesses and pours out God's blessing on the church. This is the other thing that is so tragic, though, is that someone's exceptional generosity can unlock, unlock hypocrisy in other people. And now, straight after that, we read of this terrible story of Ananias and Sapphira. And why it's terrible to me is because the church had been doing so well. It's so full of unity and love, and this, this little event is like a marker, and after that, the church is never quite like what it was because of what happened with Ananias and, and Sapphira. And this, this thing of withholding that comes upon the church. And, and I want to focus on, not, again, not the money, but what the money shows. Because what Barnabas and, uh, had done brought such a response from the church, and they, they all said, this is, this is God. This is just, we can see this is God. Ananias and Sapphira, what did they want? They were not living in the audience for the audience of one. Matthew 6, Matthew 7, when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you give, when you fast, when you pray, you don't do it for what people can see you doing. You do it for your Father in heaven. You live for the audience of one. You live in, with the eye of the Father upon you, and you just get on and live your life. And what your Father sees you do in secret, He will reward you for. And so you store up treasure for yourself in heaven. And Ananias and Sapphira, I want to say to you, they were saved. They were saved. They were also full of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm sure that they were part of the 120. They were. They were part of the 120 in the upper room, and they were filled with the Spirit. And yet in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, what does Peter say? He says, why has Satan so filled your heart that you behaved like this? Well, how does that happen? I think that's an interesting question. How does Satan so get a hold of someone that he warps their life? I think... A very simple answer. How many of you like to be liked? I do. How many of you like to be admired? I do. I like to be admired. You see, the problem is that they like that too much. 
Behind all hypocrisy is this thing called self-love. We actually love ourselves too much, and we actually want to be admired too much, and we want to be seen to be doing the right thing, and that is where the problem comes for Ananias and Sapphira. Basically, what Peter says is, is you've been lying against the Holy Spirit. You've been uh, living this thing which is not really true. I mean, they weren't forced to sell their land, were they? I mean, the believers were being persecuted at that time. I mean, the church was in a minority. They were, they were part of like a, a band of guys. Why did God judge this thing so severely? Why did he? Well, I think simply because he was saying, I hate hypocrisy. That's why he judged it severely. Hidden sin, he judged it. I'm not saying they were not saved. I'm saying they are saved. I'm saying they, they went to heaven, absolutely. But you know, 1 Corinthians 3 has got a fascinating verse. It says, some of us will be saved as through the flames. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what that means? As saved as through the flames. We kind of get to heaven, but not quite the way that God has in mind for us. And basically what I'm trying to say to you is that a church that God has in mind must be a church of passion and unity, a church full of the Holy Spirit, and I'm trusting for this season of our church that we are going to see the Holy Spirit poured out. Uh, we can't make that happen. You know, we can, we can get together every week, and we can trust God, and we can worship with all of our hearts. We can pray. We can do what we can do, but only God can sovereignly move and pour himself out. But I want to say to you, for the next season of this church, we desperately need the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon every single family, every single life, transforming us from the inside out, encouraging us, refreshing us. We need the Holy Spirit like a desert needs rain. I can't put it any more strongly than that. We do. I want to ask you that that would be the prayer of your heart for the next 10 years. That's all I'm asking you this morning. I want to celebrate the last 10. But as you look forward to the next 10, let it be, God, if you do not build this church, we labor in vain. If it's not your spirit that builds this church, we labor in vain. If it's not your spirit that is upon us, we can come every week and we can do our thing like the church was doing the thing that we're doing before the Holy Spirit was poured out, reading the scripture, praying together, having fellowship. But unless the spirit brings life, we are a social club. We are. We are a social club and we get together on Sundays. We don't get together on, on Saturdays. We get together on Sundays. I, 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 I trust I'm encouraging you guys. Eh? I'm saying, Lord, I want the Spirit to come. With all of my heart, please, I can't force it, but Lord, come. You see, hypocrisy ruins our lives. They actually, Ananias and Sapphira, the tragedy of the story is they were in God's will for their lives and their, and their own hypocrisy ruined their lives. They lost opportunity to share in storing up treasure for themselves in heaven. They were true believers, but they hadn't taken seriously what God also says, is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's more that I have for you. And they fell into that temptation, that trap. Let's, let us not be the same. Let us be those that are saying, God, with all of our hearts, we want the fullness of what you have for us. If you read in Acts chapter 5, verse 13, after this event of Ananias and Sapphira, there's a tragic thing that happens. It now says that the people are too scared to join the church. <laughs> but the church is greatly admired. Can you imagine being part of a church like that? That say, next Sunday, I don't know, 
God strikes someone dead for some reason. I mean, it would have an impact into the community. Would you not agree? I mean, people would say, that's, I mean, you go to that church, you're in danger for your life. I think that would be incredible to be part of a church like that. I mean, like this terrified, terrified kind of joy going on a Sunday. No, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But it says, it says, it says the church was, people were afraid of joining the church, but the, the church was greatly admired, and people still joined them anyway. And a great number of people got saved. And uh, the historians say that at that time, Jerusalem couldn't have been more than 100,000 people or so. So if the church was 10,000, one-tenth of the population had got saved. Isn't that incredible? What is the population of St. Albans? 100,000? At least? It's St. Albans? Well, 10,000, a church of 10,000. And that's a serious thing. You can impact the community like that. I'm landing. I didn't want to speak more than half an hour. And we go, you read on in the, in the, the, the following chapters, there's, there's this ongoing, amazing evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the early church. It says even of Peter, that when Peter walked, people would try and get and uh, let his shadow fall upon them because when his shadow fell upon them, they were healed. Don't you find that extraordinary? That's the power. I don't know how that works. I mean, there's no laying on of hands there. It's like just God moves. God moves. And the shadow of the man heals people. These miracles, amazing miracles, testifying to God's power. Every aspect of his power over the entire world, testifying of the Messiahship of Jesus. And every time a miracle happens, you notice if you go and read those chapters, the apostles preach off the back of it and they say, they point people to Christ all the time. They say, this is what you've done. You have crucified this one who's bringing this, this into people's lives. I want to say as we go forward, when I read those first couple of chapters in terms of the book of Acts, the problem with that generation of people was not that they didn't have enough evidence to believe. They had loads of evidence to believe. Resurrection of Jesus had happened. They couldn't find the body. The Romans couldn't produce the body. If the apostles had the body, why didn't they just come and, and ask the apostles for the body? It says, in fact, the scripture says the guards were bribed to, 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 to say uh, what had happened in the tomb. They were bribed by the Jewish officials to, to say that it didn't happen. There are these abundant miracles that are happening as evidence of the Messiahship and the resurrection of Christ. There's this brilliant preaching of Peter that we didn't reference, but in Acts chapter 2, go and read it for your devotions this week, where Paul brilliantly, uh, Peter brilliantly gets up after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he just preaches off the back of it in a direct way to the people, and many are saved. There's this brilliant anointed preaching. There's all these signs and wonders. There's great, great evidence. I want to say to you, for me, what that shows is that we don't need more evidence. We, we need hearts that are open to the evidence. That's what we need as a church. That's what this community needs. We need hearts that are open to what God is doing, what God has done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the problem really with that generation is the same problem that we have today. It was a problem of sin and rebellion in the heart. Why? Have you, have you, not, have you not asked this question? I, I was just, again, this week as I was thinking, the Pharisees and the Sadducees absolutely fascinated me because in that Acts chapter 3 where we read where the man is healed, it says that the, man, the healed man was actually standing with them before them. 
And yet they were so violent in their op- opposition to the gospel. I, I find that incredible. This man is healed. He's standing with Peter and with John. And they can see him standing there before, before them. He's been a cripple for 40 years. They're not rejoicing. They're angry. I mean, that is like, that is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. I asked myself this week, why, why is that? Well, I think probably because their whole, their whole life was wrapped up in the religious thing that they had. And this was, this was threatening the religious institution. And so they were violently opposed. Even though they could see the good that was happening, they were violently opposed. Why? Because their jobs were threatened. Because in Acts chapter 2, what happens is the ones with real power are seen. Not the religious guys. The ones with real power, where the Holy Spirit is upon those people who are now speaking in tongues and so drawing a crowd that everyone's saying, well, what's happening? What's happening with these guys? It's not the religious people that have the power. It's just the ones who simply believe in Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And that so threatened them that they can't rejoice when they see a crippled man healed. And he's standing right there with them. I find that absolutely astounding. The church that God has in mind is a church that preaches the gospel, unified, loves each other deeply. I know, you know, as I was saying, preparing this this week, I said to Helen, it is so simple. I feel almost like on Sunday, I'm going to say these like simple, simple things. Not going to impress anyone. If you're all, if you're all coming to this morning to be impressed about the vision for the next 10 years, I want to say to you, that's, that's the vision for the next 10 years. <laughs> to love Jesus with all of our hearts. To be unified. To love each other. To put aside all things. You know, I was saying to Helen in the car, and sorry, this is waffling a bit now, but I was just thinking this week, you know what courage it takes to actually keep your heart open? It takes extraordinary courage. When you've had some battles and you've fought some fights and you've been wounded a little bit, the thing is you automatically just want to close your heart. And so you're civil to people, but you don't really let them in. You kind of just, just a little bit of distance. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I want to say the church that God has in mind is a courageous church that's prepared to open its hearts to each other and still keep it open and still keep it open. Even when there are discouragements and people have hurt each other, still keep it open. That God can do the deeper things. That takes courage. It's not the courage of the battlefield. No, it's not. But it takes courage to do that. It's far easier just to retreat. And I won't love anymore. Church that God has in mind, full of unity, full of power, full of love, full of the Holy Spirit, completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Completely dependent. I want to be part of a church like that. I trust that you would agree with me. There's only one remedy to what I've said this morning. It's the kind of church that through the power of the Spirit sees rebellion and sin in people's lives broken by the power of the cross. And through the power of the cross, we can enter into the future, the complete future that God has for us. That's the church that God has in mind. I want to encourage you that our faith is in that, not not in our skill, not in the fact that we might be able to play music or not play music or be nice people or not be nice people. There's always someone nicer. It's true, isn't it? There's always someone nicer. Our our faith has to be in a faithful God, in the risen Christ, and in the power of His Holy Spirit in us, transforming the community. That's where our faith has to be. That's the church that God has in mind. Amen? Father, 
I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you, Lord, that as we look back, at the same time, Father, we are looking forward with such joy in our hearts because you are building this church. We thank you, Lord. We rejoice in every good thing that you've done over the last 10 years. But, Father, for the next 10, we ask that you would help us be those that are completely dependent upon you. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would so surprise us, that you would pour yourself out in great power upon this church, whether it happens tomorrow, now, whether it happens next week. I thank you that you want to do it. I thank you that you want to transform hearts and lives radically, radically, radically. I thank you, Lord, that the testimony will be of a fragrant perfume that affects this whole community. And Lord, we trust you for that. We trust you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all that you're doing. You've been so good to us, Lord. We rejoice in every good thing that you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just while Anne's been preaching, I've just had such a, a word bubbling in me that's been brewing the whole week, and I, I think it'd just be wonderful to flow into our, our time of breaking bread together. But uh, in terms of, uh, just been reading Colossians, and there's this amazing three ingredients that are signs of a church that's in revival, and the one is that the gospel truth is preached, the second thing is that the power of God is poured out by the Holy Spirit, and the third thing is that there's such an evidence of love in the believers towards one another. And uh, we were just talking about this together, uh, some ladies this week, and uh, I just want to share this amazing thing, which I think is something of the picture of of, of the love that God wants us to have in these, these years going ahead. And, and certainly when I heard this read, I, I kind of like went, whoa, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not there. But I just think it's a wonderful inspirational picture of, of this 1 Corinthians 13 love. Love suffers long having patience with imperfect people. Love is kind, active in doing good. Love does not envy, since it is non-possessive and non-competitive. It actually wants other people to get ahead. Hence, it does not parade itself. Love has a self-effacing quality. It is not ostentatious. Love is not puffed up, treating others arrogantly. It does not behave rudely, but displays good manners and courtesy. Love does not seek its own, insisting on its own rights and demanding precedence. Rather, it is unselfish. Love is not provoked. It is not irritable or touchy, rough or hostile, but it is graceful under pressure. Kind of went, ooh, dear. Love thinks no evil. It does not keep an account of wrongs done to it. Instead, it erases resentments. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, finding satisfaction in the shortcomings of others and spreading an evil report. Rather, it rejoices in the truth, aggressively advertising the good. Love bears all things, defending and holding other people up. Love believes the best about others, and credits them with good intentions and is not suspicious. Love hopes all things, never giving up on people, but affirming their future. Love endures all things, persevering and remaining loyal right to the end. Love never fails.
Isn't that amazing? So beautiful. Chrissy gave me these words this morning. It would be wonderful if she could write them up somewhere. I just find them incredibly inspirational. But I, I just had this other thing beating in my heart, and that's that well, I was driving the car one day, and I was just driving, and I had this picture of um, Moses standing at the Red Sea, having led the Israelites out of Egypt, and he had the Red Sea in front of him with the Egyptians at his back about to advance. And he stands there totally helpless, saying, God, what am I to do? I'm in an impossible situation. And he hears these words from God that says, only stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. And I don't think, when I was thinking about Moses, I don't think he had a clue in his mind what God was about to do. Do you think in his finite imagination he ever imagined that God was about to part the sea, that this great wall of water was about to form on either side and they were going to advance through? He might have thought he was going to send something to kill the, to the, the Egyptians or build a bridge, but I, I don't think he imagined that. And I just felt the sense of as we read this picture of love that God has for us to move into, I don't think we have an inkling of what God wants to do, of the miraculous thing that he wants to unfold in this community. And his word to us is stand firm in the things I've shown you, in the things I've put in your heart, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. I just want to prophesy, I believe that God is going to bring restoration of relationships. I believe there are families here who are trusting for people to be saved. God is saying, you will see the miraculous. You will see me part the sea. Where you can see no way forward, God says, I am making a way through the river. I'm making a way through that which seems impossible. And I want to, I just believe God is calling us to be a people of faith, to stand firm and to see the deliverance of the Lord. And I just want to say that as we begin, as we break bread this morning, I want to say that the blood of Jesus covers our past. Whatever it may be that you have had in the past that you know that the Lord needs to cover, it is covered by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. But just as it has covered the past and the Israelites needed to go forward into the future, his blood lays the way forward for all that you need to move into. And I want to say there's nothing in your future today, there's nothing that you can face that the Lord has not covered by his blood. He has washed you, he has cleansed you, he has sanctified you, and he has kept you for himself for an eternal glory. His blood is going away ahead of you. And for this church, his blood has covered this church in the past, and his blood will cover and pave the way for the future. So I just want to speak life. I just believe the Lord wants to speak life over this community. I believe he wants to speak his joy. I, want to sp- I believe he wants to speak miraculous things. I believe there are miracles of healing that he wants to do, but there are miracles in people's hearts that he wants to do, and miracles that he wants to stand us with. I want to say that in a, in a few years' time, a few months' time, even in a few weeks' time, you are going to stand like Moses and be amazed at what God is going to do. You're going to say, I never would have imagined. I never would have imagined. And I want to ask you this morning, as you take bread and you come and share with the bread and the wine or the juice, I want to ask that you come with faith in your heart and expectation. Because I'm speaking over you today, every single person here, you will be amazed. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord.